Good morning and welcome to Generation Tech. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm joined as always by my, with, by my dad, Jack Brinker, thus the generations in Generation Tech. One of these days, we're going to get one of the young'uns. We're going to get like uh, my daughter, Jensen, or my nephew, uh, Alex, to join us. Um, hey, Alex would and, be good, wouldn't he? Yeah, you know, and I've invited him. Um, his concern was that he has to go get that approved at work because he works in a, an agency that does government contracting. And so he has to let them know anytime he's going to be talking publicly about anything. And, oh. uh, and he obviously can't talk about anything that he does at work, but you know, it's not like that's what we talk about anyway. Um, right. so, right. uh, yeah, I need to, uh, remind him and see if, cause I, I told him about it and he expressed interest and I think he would, he would have fun joining in with us on, on some of the conversations. Uh, but, yeah, I uh, um, we'll see if he, uh, that'd be cool you know. if we got three generations. Yeah. Well, that was sort of the idea when I launched this is that we would occasionally be joined by the, a, a younger generation yet, but we have not. So, uh, um, you know, maybe we can go down even another generation and get, um, one of my nephews to join us. You know, we could probably talk to, um, to, uh, Noah about his, uh, you know, how he uses computers and how he uses his phone and how, you know, what that means to him. And, you know, yeah. that would be a different, different show, but we could, we could really, we could actually honestly go, you know, for, uh, um, uh, well, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's not he's, another generation. He's a, he's a cousin. That's true. That's true. He's, he's same <laughs> generation, even though Alex is an adult and, and he is not yet. Um, so, yeah. uh, so yeah, that, the, my my darling baby sister uh, started a little later than the rest of us. So, yep. No, so. actually, I don't know that she started that much later than I did. We started pretty late too. I think you guys were beginning to wonder if we were going to have a family, but uh, <laughs> you know, everybody does things in their own time. So, did you see the links that I sent about the article about the the sort of uh, the the beginnings of the ARM computers and ARM architecture? I did, and and I really enjoyed that. I uh, I, I had a lot of uh, uh, understanding of all that stuff uh, when I was still mm -hmm. in the workforce, but uh, didn't right. know the players that came along a generation later. Uh, yeah, well, and a lot of those guys were, um, you know, they were in the UK, so they weren't necessarily like the guys that we think of as here, you know? Right. Um, I mean, the one guy that they had the um, that I set the separate video on, it was embedded in the article, but I sent it as a separate video as well. Uh, was sort of like the guy who was doing circuit design, and he kind of reminded me of, of you know, the British version of Steve Wozniak, right? He was the the hardware engineer in there, going, well, if we run it this way, you know. <laughs> but it was it was particularly interesting because I remember, you know, that in the early '80s, that was a big deal about the difference between risk, you know, between reduced instruction set computers and complex instruction set and computers, and at the time. The consensus sort of was that risk computers were the right way to go, and yet everybody was using Intel computers by that time because that's when, when the uh, IBM launched their PC and they chose to run on Intel, and it became the dominant computer for the next you know three or four decades. I mean, still is to this day. Uh, you know, uh, well, I shouldn't say it is to this day. It probably was right up until uh, two thousand and seven ish when uh, Apple launched the first like truly smartphone. I mean, I right. know that Palm existed before that, and I, I was a big Palm fan and liked the smart functions. I mean, there's literally nothing that we're doing today on a uh, on an Apple phone that I wasn't able to do on a Palm phone by downloading apps there. It was just 
different. You know, and I think that there's no doubt that this has moved to a better interface because well, you get more screen this way. Un- in, in one word, buttons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, for those who don't know the Palm, it looked very much like the uh, the BlackBerry, the the Research in Motion BlackBerry, in that, yeah. you know, the top half was a screen and the bottom half was a keyboard. Um, and, and it was primarily designed as a texting and messaging device. And, um, and, if, any, and if anyone understands the reliability world... Anything mm-hmm. mechanical, specifically switches, are historically unreliable. You go pushing yeah. buttons often enough, and they die, you know? Yeah. And that was a bit of an issue. I know there were some people who would have, like, you know, you'd have a key that you'd have to, like, jam a little harder sometimes to get because the keyboard would get gummed up or something, you know, you'd get some... Because it's impossible to keep, you know, finger oils and dirt and stuff from creeping underneath the keys and, and then messing yeah. with the contacts on a switch. And so... uh you know, but I remember a lot of people were very concerned about switching from those devices to a device where there were no keys. It's like, well, how am I going to be able to type on a piece of glass that doesn't make sense? You yeah. know, until you started doing it, and then you went like, oh, okay, this works just fine. But but you know, but for our audience who doesn't quite understand what I uh, meant by what I said about reliability, they'll say, oh, but we've had keyboards and typewriters on computers and still do, and there's no problem ever. Well, Apple demonstrated how much of a problem it is when you try to get creative and design something slightly different. And suddenly they had a bunch of computers yeah. with bad keyboards. Yeah, the okay. difference between a- uh, between successful and reliable and, 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 and just not quite reliable enough it can, can sometimes be a few millimeters of depth, right, on <laughs> your keyboard. Uh, oh, oh all, all of these yeah. things, uh, mechanical... Uh, have little nuances that you don't ever suspect until you try them like Apple did. Yeah, yeah until 10,000 people have used it, and you find out that, you know, 8,000 of them were fine, but the other 2,000 are angry, and they're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I think something similar to this came up in that video that you sent me about the development of the Beeb, uh, which was the B- BBC computer as it was known in great britain right which was sort of the archetype of the original arm computer came out of that that development process but what i'm referring to are his comments at the end of the clip where he's talking about uh uh, the power supplies dying to 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 a finger on the motherboard right which was necessary to hold to make it work and he didn't know why but if you put your finger yeah. on this spot everything worked just fine so there's yeah your finger created just enough resistance that it made everything work right and that some signal somewhere was exceeding the parameters of the of so, the the ability to send it so they just put resistors there but, 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 I, but i just absolutely love that because the solution the solution yeah. of all things was to put a little resistor pad there with a little socket above it that had no purpose at all but it fixed the problem. It was like a like a mechanical fix for the finger on the motherboard, and yeah. they sent out thousands of motherboards with that arrangement. Yeah, and they, yeah. they worked reliably. And no. Yeah, there's a little why. resistor pack there. It's like, what does that do? We don't know, but it makes it work. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, I had never seen anyone admit to something that really, and and I didn't know that they went out and and shipped thousands of these things with that kind yeah. of fix but that's the engineering tweak you know just to make it work and, right and it well it's funny because 
Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, to put that, you know, in, in timeline, that is, uh, you know, in the same era that in the United States we had the Apple IIs and, uh, and the predecessor to the Commodore 64 was the PET computer. And so the PET and the, and the Apple II uh, were, you know, computers that were here in the United States, the T, TI and Atari made computers, you know, there were, these were the computers that you could buy. And, uh, you know, and in the UK... A lot of people didn't get those because those were available there too. What they got was this BBC Micro because it was sponsored by the the BBC. The British Broadcasting System ran a series on television called The Computer. And if you went and bought a BBC computer, you could then do everything they did on the show. And they would make the code that they were running on the show available for you to type in or download on a cassette tape. Um, and, uh, and, and so you could follow the show each week and do the thing and learn to use your computer. They, you know, would sell you this little couple hundred dollar computer and do all the same things, but they had to design that computer. And so the BBC basically said, these are the parameters. We need this computer to be able to do these things. And a little company that up till then, almost nobody had heard of, uh, Acorn computing, um, went and developed this computer for the BBC and uh and Acorn eventually became the creators of ARM computers or ARM c- chips which are basically the chips in every phone everywhere on the planet these days and so uh those that that ARM architecture has grown and obviously you know expanded and gotten better and better but the uh the company still exists and in fact um just recently they were uh, up for sale because they were spun off separately from Acorn and uh, and became Advanced Computer at that point when they were just licensing their 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 chip design and I can't remember who it was that was to was it like Google was going to buy them or something like oh no no it was um, the graphics card maker the one Nvidia Nvidia was looking to buy them and a lot of people were concerned because they said oh no Apple's you know doesn't like Nvidia they don't get along with each other very well and Nvidia is going to go buy ARM and then Apple won't have access to to and no 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 way way back when apple first decided to use this and this is something a lot of people didn't know people considered the first handheld computer that was really widely talked about was apple's newton and they considered it a failure that it didn't do a lot of the things that it wanted to do but apple very intentionally at that time was looking for a cpu they could run that would run low power and run off literally double a batteries and so when they went to build the Newton, they got a hold or found out about the, the folks who were making these ARM computers, and they went and invested a lot of money in ARM and have basically a perpetual license to use their architecture forever. And so it doesn't matter who owns ARM. Apple has the rights to use that architecture indefinitely because they put a lot of money into ARM. And this is during the John Scully days. So it's after John uh, after um, uh, Steve Jobs left the company. But before they were in such financial straits that they were about to go under and Steve Jobs came back to the company. And so they had money to invest at that point in time. And they invested a lot of money in ARM. And I'll tell you what, that was one brilliant thing that John Scully did is that Apple now has rights to ARM. And who knew that was going to become the the underpinnings of everything they make? I mean, you know, they've now started moving all their Macs over to that same architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, and it all started back back in the 90s when they said we want to make this little handheld computer and we need something that runs low power but yep. gives us enough power to do the you know computing power to do the things that we want to do 
And the yeah. new, and I thought was really interesting when I was working for Gannett newspapers, here's my story about, you know, brushes with tech. When I was working for Gannett newspapers, one of the ideas that the Apple people had was that these Newtons would become electronic notepads available for, and, and, and that they would be really handy for, um, uh, for Journal. reporters to use because you could write your notes down. It would transcribe your notes into typewritten stuff. And then it had a modem built in and you could plug it into a phone line and it would send that story into the newspaper. So you're out in the field. You could literally handwrite your story and send it in. Now it kind of skipped the whole, we take notes, then we write the story. We don't write the story while we're taking notes process. They didn't quite get that. But because Gannett Newspapers was a large newspaper chain at that time, there was over 100 Gannett Newspapers, I was one of the people who got to be a representative for Gannett and went with a group of about six other people down to uh, Apple Park. And we were at Apple One and went into the headquarters, had to sign non-disclosure agreements, and we were shown a Newton uh, and and, and they told us about what they did and how they worked before anybody else had ever seen them, you know, outside of Apple. And Gannett actually did a deal where we were uh, evaluating and testing Newtons, and my site got several of them. I still have a couple Newtons to this day, and uh, when you put batteries in them and turn them on, they work. They they still fact, work, huh? They still work. I have a box of software that I can use to load apps onto the Newton. Now I haven't tried doing that in a while because I don't have a Mac that has a lap, or I, I have a I have to, a USB one, but I don't have a Mac that has a. Uh, a disk drive because the software is on a disk drive and you had to load it into your Mac and then attach your Newton to your Mac to get it in there. So I don't even know if that's supported anymore. Um, I still have an older Mac that I could use to do that if I wanted to, I guess, because I've got a couple of older Macs. Um, mm. But anyway, that was kind of interesting. I got to got to see that Newton early, and I like I said, I still got uh, the like an original one, and then and they had like two or three different upgraded versions over time. They went newer processors and stuff in them before they finally would- killed it. Was that when you were working in L.A.? I can't remember where you worked. No, no. The, I was working. I was still working in um, for Gannett Newspapers in uh, in uh, North uh, in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. I worked in Pittsburgh oh. and flew out to Apple oh. to see this uh, oh, okay. with uh, and met with me and a couple of the corporate people and and uh, our site was was kind of a special site within Gannett Newspapers in that. Um, uh, there had been a big strike on the major paper in Pittsburgh, and we 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 ran two little newspapers in the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh, and so um, our subscription rates went way way up. Our, our numbers went way up because people still wanted newspapers at that time. It was before newspapers were uh, all dying, and uh, and so there was a lot of effort and money being put into expanding these newspapers to be able to meet the demands of. Uh, the city of Pittsburgh because the Pittsburgh post Gazette was on strike and there was no Pittsburgh paper, even though we were a suburb paper, you know, smaller papers. And then to add, um, uh, add to that, the then CEO of Gannett grew up in that area and his parents still lived there and he visited regularly. And so, you know, when you're a small community newspaper run by maybe, you know, 7,500 employees, and the CEO of the corporate 100-plus newspaper comes and visits regularly, you get a little more attention and a little bit more focus. And so uh, as the IT director for that newspaper, I was one of, the, you know, one of the people who went with the corporate people back to Apple, and we were the test bed for using um, uh, 
Apple Newtons in our newsroom. We also, um, uh, while I was there, Pittsburgh was the host of the U.S. Open for golf. And uh, I set up the first remote uh, access to our network using a Microsoft NT computer where people could dial in through through a phone line and actually attach to the network with their computer remotely and do everything as if they were sitting in the office. Um, and, uh, and this is back, again, real early 90s, um, 93, 92, somewhere in there. And they could dial in and, uh, and send digital pictures. We also tested some of the first digital cameras. They had this digital Kodak back that attached to the back of a Nikon professional camera. And the thing was the size of a shoebox, and it snapped you know, the camera attached to it instead of putting film in there. And, uh, and so they would be able to go out onto the golf course. We rented a condo across from the golf course and set that up as a remote office. And they were able to, uh, to send pictures digitally in instead of driving them up and, you know, and, and developing film. Um, back in the day, yeah, it was a fun I remember, time. I remember visiting you, and, uh, and we went down to the newspaper office, at least the one on the river there. I forgot what uh-huh. town that, that was. was. Torrentum. Uh, Torrentum, yeah, and mm-hmm. that's on the what river was that? Uh, uh, that was the Allegheny. The Monongahela came up from the south, and the two of yeah. them met to form the Ohio at Three Rivers, thus Three Rivers Stadium. Yep, Three Rivers right. is at the 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 confluence of the Allegheny and the Monongahela, forming the uh, the beginning of the Ohio River. Yeah, yeah. Prior prior to that, my only connection to Pittsburgh was through the uh, that university there that uh, helped write the Ada language. Yeah, Carnegie Mellon. Yep, Carnegie Mellon. And they do say it Carnegie there. It's not Carnegie. In Pittsburgh, the Carnegie family pronounces it Carnegie, and that's how it's pronounced in in Pittsburgh. Yuns would know that if you'd been to Pittsburgh. Yuns is also a (laughs) Pittsburghian thing. I'm glad you you mentioned it because I, I was... Uh, it just slipped my mind momentarily what the college was. That's why I said right. university yes. there. Founded but, by Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't even remember uh, the 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 uh, Ada. That was the, the the name of the language. Right, after, which sort of became, it was is identified as the default language after, for all U.S. Uh, military contracts, right? Right, yeah. It ultimately failed, but that was... Uh, to have a standard for all military development, uh, and uh, I don't know if there's any of it still in use, but uh, mm-hmm. I, it, it wasn't the success that people thought it would be. Right. But and 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 the problem is, is they just didn't recognize the power of having more users, so they put a lot of stuff in there that was not necessarily something what the average programmer would would use. Right. You know? Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it's launching launching a new language. I mean, you know, it's 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 a lot of work to create a language that is sufficient. But then, you know, you have to have some reason for people to want to go do it. You know, you well, need something convincing to to say go do it. You know, and well, the only one that I mean, there's been lots of them over the years, but uh, but you know, you have to gain some some acceptance. Yeah, yeah. You know? this- this was also an era where there were a number of other languages being developed that had to be viewed as competition, although the government, you know, they have this arrogant attitude that it's nobody really competes with us. We do what we want to yeah. do. We have mandated. Lot, yeah, right. we have a lot of money, you know, spend the yeah. taxpayer dollars. But nevertheless, uh, Pascal was extremely popular at that time. 
but the right. real uh, underdog that that won, if, if you will, if it's a competition, was C was coming into its own then. And right. Of course, that was a resounding success. Right. Uh, well, and and the the you know both Ada and Pascal had uh, some object orientedness to their to their design structure, which C did not initially. What people didn't see coming was C adapted. Right. They just took the best yep. ideas and said, "We'll just add that to the language." You know. Yep. So there's lots of flavors of C out there now that have you know varying degrees of of that you know that design capability built into it. Yeah, um, one of the with, ma- ma- one of the major dis- differences was C was an extremely succinct language. You could express mm-hmm. a lot in a few letters, and nobody appreciated that the, the fact that a programmer liked to type his program while he's doing it. And he doesn't want to type a whole bunch of letters, and if you yeah. program the same thing in C or Pascal or Ada, you'd spend a lot more time typing the the uh, yeah, how verbose it is has a lot to do with whether it's liked or not. If it's yes. if it's overly verbose, you know, yeah, it may be more legible to read. Uh, you know, and there may be some advantages, but yeah, you know, well, people who well, program didn't go into programming because they were great typists. They became yeah. typists so that they could program. <laughs> and, and and it became and it became a that was the the big requirement for the military language because they wanted maintainability, like twenty. 30, 50 years, you know, that somebody would still be able to do this. Well, uh, and so there it was, therefore it was meant to read like a book almost, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. So in fact, it, actually, I remember there was some conversations about the fact that it was the, the, one of the advantages of it was that they tried to push was it was self-documenting, right? That, that as you wrote right. the program, it essentially documented itself because it was so verbose. It explained what the heck it was doing. Yep. But, um, you know, which anyway. which I guess if you're maintaining something is probably not a bad thing because anybody who's looked at C code knows that there is a, a wide variance in how well it is um, explained, <laughs> you know, yeah. how well people have gone in and said, this is what I'm doing with this chunk of code versus, okay, crap. And now I have to sit down and read through this and really try to interpret what the heck this guy was thinking when he made this particular piece of code so that I can now you know, add some functionality that, that my boss says we need to have. <laughs> yeah. There, there were a number of features, though, of ADA that really meant they were, they were good investments in the sense that they later got embedded in other codes. Uh, right. Uh, some of them specifically on errors. Uh, the system program wouldn't, you know, a lot of times uh, uh, a system will hang because of, at least prior to that, because there were certain mm-hmm. features of the language that it didn't detect an error and it would cause it to hang and sit there and spin its wheels until you reset it you know well in military uh, uh, applications you don't want the missile to suddenly hang up while it's in the air on the way to the target right <laughs> yeah oops sorry so, don't know what to do error so it, error it, so yeah it, it's got it's got to have all these error detection uh, features built in and know what it's going to do as a result of whatever that error was got to do something to get itself back right online so anyway there that's just a lot of interesting things that you don't think about if you're not inventing languages or comparing one to another uh but uh, yeah well and the nice thing about that is is that you know the features of a language are are just ideas and right. so if something works well on one language people who 
manage and control the the structures in a language can say that's a good idea let's let's incorporate that into this language and see more so than just about any language has it, when it comes to computer programming has been a jack of all trades you know it's like okay that's a good idea we'll just create a new fork of c that 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 you know incorporates that because we well, need it for this particular thing and there's so many programmers who know and understand C that, you know, it's fine. I don't have to relearn everything. All I have to do is learn this new piece that you've added on in order to take advantage of it. And a lot of that came about because of the one of the I forgot the guy who wrote the C manual, but he was around for something like eight or ten years. And mm -hmm. he was one of these guys that said, oh, I can put that into the language. And so he was continually making these little changes, you know, and up alterations and upgrades. Uh, to the language as but during that period of time now mm. beyond Dennis Ritchie uh, Ritchie yeah and 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 once Dennis everybody knew that he wasn't going to be around doing this much longer there was a big sort of effort to build a uh, they, they knew they couldn't get one person to replace him but they built this right. fairly small committee of the best people that had worked with him to continue on and I don't know the history much beyond yeah. that but well, they set it up as part of a, a ISO standard through the Standards Organization, International Standards Organization, and then they and then and then created a a um, uh, like a management committee that essentially kind of took over um, after he stepped back, and so you know that they they are the definitive standard bearers for what is and what is not in air quotes here C, right? Doesn't mean that somebody else can't have an idea, take that and say, okay, we're going to have a version of it. Like, you know, uh, uh, there's, you know, C sharp and object objective C and, and, you know, there's lots of different flavors and variations that have had, you know, extensions to the language that add functionality that were needed by a group of people at a certain particular time. Right. Right. So, uh, um, anyway, I think we probably beat languages to death here, but, uh, yeah. We I do want to say one thing that was added on is, you know, uh, recently in the last couple of years, Apple has made a, um, you know, a big push to to move their programming uh, from Objective-C, which was sort of their flavor of an object-oriented C, to Swift. But uh, although Swift is a different language, if you look at it, it is clearly a language that was designed by people who came from C and said, here's the drawbacks of, of coding in C. Let's see if we can maybe design a language that is going to uh, give us all of the flexibility and expressiveness in trying to create and solve problems, um, but solve some of the problems that we all agree C has. Yeah. And so, you know, I, thus Swift I, I, is. I haven't you know, seen an updated review on how that's doing. You know, it's yeah. a lot of. Lot um, of it's. Yeah, well, I mean, virtually, uh, I, I, I mean, I haven't done a lot with it other than just poke around it. They're on version five now. Um, they've turned it over to a standards organization, so it's not just controlled by Apple, um, although it is the primary language now for development within the Apple community. And in fact, um, uh, as Apple has gone through in the most recent version of their operating system, they've rewritten lots of, of parts of the operating system. Virtually all of that rewrite was done within Swift. Um, and so, uh, like when you first uh, started, when they first announced it and launched it, you would use Swift maybe to write your program, but you had to then reference 
all of the libraries in their development environment were still written in C. And so you really had to work in sort of a hybrid. Um, and that has changed to the point where now virtually everything is out there is available in Swift. Um, and they've added quite a few nice things to their development environment that make it the, the, the easier choice when developing on, on a Mac. And particularly when you're compiling a universal app that will run on Intel and on the new um, uh, uh, M1-based Macs that are out there. So, um, yeah, that it is going gangbusters and is, you know, it, it, it went through a lot of growing pains from version 1 to version 5. In yeah. terms of, of you know, wait a minute, we went down this this rat hole and we found out that this doesn't work the way we wanted it to, so we'll change it. So I think if you were trying to be an early adopter, you probably got burned a lot because, <laughs> you know, code that you would write for this version maybe wouldn't run under the next version because they had changed something. But they've, that's all settled down now so that the, the core language is pretty much settled. And so at this point, you know, the things they're talking about is a lot of development environment things um yep. in the mac world um but they've also created because they 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 opened it up to a standards organization swift is now you know available in lots of other places you can also you can use it as a um uh, uh scripting uh and 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 uh, control code for uh on the server side programming and things like that it's not just for uh you know uh, retail application development and so, yep. um, uh, yeah, it's uh, they're saying that in the first quarter of 2018, Swift surpassed Objective C in uh, in the number of new apps submitted to the App Store. Uh, so, wow. yeah, well, and they're currently officially on release 5.1. Yeah. Okay. Well, things move on. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I kind of wanted to shift the the topic back to the hardware side of where we began, yeah. began to talk today, uh, and that is risk. Uh, that was uh, very apparent right up front to everybody who was a hardware engineer as an obvious design idea. Uh, right. And in, and in fact, uh, I will even claim to have been designed a risk controller, I'll say, not a computer, because my business at the time was how to get data from uh, navigation s systems, which were first, first of all, serial outputs, but that's a minor difference because mm -hmm. first before processing you convert it to parallel mm -hmm. but uh, and uh, the other thing that goes with risk is, is it, because you're doing this for speed uh, you want to uh, by the way uh, risk means reduced instruction set computers right or processors Okay. Yeah, for those who don't know, complex instruction set versus reduced instruction set are sort of the yeah. two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Now, uh, in order to achieve this reduced instruction set, what it meant is that you could do more with a single instruction than you could in a complex instruction yeah. set. In the article that I was, in the article that I was talking about. They, they actually defined that, I thought, pretty well. In that, with the way they defined it was a complex instruction set. Um, would that, that that each instruction might actually do more things, but that it would very often require more than a single computer cycle in order to do them. So that the, if you said do something, it might. If you told the computer to do something, it would take a couple computer cycles to do it. Whereas a reduced instruction set, each instruction takes one computer cycle, 
And so you yeah. could be more efficient in writing because you knew each time you told it to do something, it would only take one computer cycle to do that. And that then plays into when people talk about you have a CPU of X number of megahertz. That's how many cycles it can do in a given period of time, right? And so, right. you know, higher number means it goes faster. But if you if you take two cycles to do each of your things, you essentially cut the speed of your computer in half. Right. And so reduced instruction set has the possibility of being much more efficient. Not necessarily, but possibility. But anyway, basically what it means is that instead of having your registers like 16 or 32 bits long, is that the, the uh, architectures of computers back in those days, uh, even the mini computers had a what they called a microcomputer that, that actually implemented the instruction set of the mini computer. So people who were familiar with HP computers, for example, which is the ones that I worked on, I actually bought their uh, microcomputer, microcode compiler, so that I could enhance the HP instruction set uh, and uh, and make special instructions. Now I did that mm -hmm. uh, for some hardware control applications that uh, that I had. That speed was of great importance, and so I made a few special instructions uh, on the HP machine that then I would execute those instructions in assembler language mm -hmm. and I used I used some unused uh, opcodes as they called them uh, uh, to to activate those particular functions and so that was my first understanding and knowing about uh, what really goes on behind the computers at, at that day because I went mm -hmm. out to the root root code and their microcode by the way were long reduced instruction set architecture, okay? Mm -hmm. So that if you, in order to use that and to code the microprocessor, you had to understand risk because it was still already in use. It was just used as a, a backbone for the uh, complex instruction set computer. <laughs> right. Well, to, make a, to make a long story short, I, I was in the business of uh, doing things uh, my my job was basically get data out of inertial navigation systems and on the, and put that data on magnetic tape. It came out in a serial form, and then I had to uh, do what was necessary to uh, break it up into the right pieces and put it out onto a mag tape, which were was not a serial device. It was a byte with recording a whole bunch of bytes sequences on that tape because it was a uh, uh, Eight-bit recorder, uh, of which one of those was a checksum. So there was an obvious function there that I had to do as a, a checksum function. So mm -hmm. I built, a, I had to have a controller that would do that, decide what that checksum bit meant. Now, that was a fairly easy kind of thing to do, but that was just one of several things to do. And I sort of combined that with another instruction set, which chopped the the. Uh, the code up into the actual seven data bits and then added the checksum bit. And I did that all within a, a single instruction, a risk instruction, if you will, in a long mm -hmm. register. Now, I built my long register out of what was called uh, LSI chips at the time. This isn't even close to being the kinds of, com uh, uh, in terms of size, uh, the, right. the kinds 
instructions or hardware that we have today, but it was uh, these various LSI things were made up of registered chips, uh, arithmetic units, uh, you know, the building blocks of computers. Computers were, mm -hmm. could be built with LSI chips in those days, as well as controllers, which were specialized computers, and that's what I'm talking about here. Mine was a, a computer application. I didn't have to do any arithmetics at all, so I didn't need an arithmetic unit, which you get with a computer. So that's why I called right. it a controller, see? So right. anyway, uh, and so it was, it was a interesting experience that I had then of understanding risk at the at the at the level it was at the, in those days uh, and the fundamentals still haven't changed these guys just have gone on to say well now we'll build uh, much more complicated uh, sure you know instruction yeah the understanding the, the underlying uh, physics of doing something with a complex instruction versus a reduced uh, or simplified instruction are, are still there. Um, yeah. You know, now, and, and the advantages and disadvantages of each are still there. What people don't realize, I think, is that the power PCs that Apple's run, ran on before they switched to Intel were actually RISC chips. And remember the, the Sun Spark stations? Those were RISC yeah. chips. So, yeah. you know, high-powered computers at one point in time were trying to use RISC, but they just lost out in popularity to the complex instruction set Intel-based computers because uh, Intel was able to to uh, give you more power more quickly at that point in time. But it's funny now that the exact opposite has happened, right? That the the Intel architecture um, has been struggling to get any more power and speed out of that architecture and the RISC chips, the uh, uh, ARM-based chips now, are uh, are now making making headway but i remember mips and and remember deck alpha they were i remember reading articles about deck alpha yeah. was going to be the it was the fastest computer going it was like hands down the best best hardware you could buy um they don't exist anymore <laughs> well, let, let, let me try to explain in a nutshell uh how that transition came about uh early on in computers we had this mindset of having assembly level uh, coding and that was sort of where everybody's mindset was and if you started to think about risk things it as far as your mind goes for programming it's much much more complex but what they did is they took the trend the, that complexity and put it put it into the uh, uh, into the language that you programmed instead of assembly into a simpler, higher-level language, and right. so you didn't have to deal with the complexity. It was just the compiler that dealt with all of that, and and directly then drove this RISC processor. And so it was just a, a matter of giving up on uh, wanting or even considering coding anything in in what they called assembly language, which used to be the native uh, code that went into the many computers of that day right well and there are still people who do some coding in assembly on on uh the pcs that we have today um generally all of the human interface stuff is done with a higher level language and you know a development environment but if you really want some specific aspect of what you're doing to run fast a lot of people will say state say that 
it's still the best way to, to get speed is to go right down to the hardware register level and use uh, assembly language. Um, well, that, I think it's that 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 only occurs for those people who don't have a real understanding of how good the compilers really are. Yeah, and the compilers they, have gotten really good. And and they've had tests where they had these arrogant coders say, "I'll do something in fewer instructions than your compiler will," and mm -hmm. they have had a tough time beating it, and seldom do. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, all of the knowledge that was necessary to do things efficiently has been uh, captured in in the uh, in the compilation code, if you will. Right. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, no. The, you're right. The 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 guys who write the compilers have said, well, you know, what is it that you're doing that makes it smarter and faster? more uh, and run faster it's not always not always less lines of code sometimes more lines of code make things run faster just because of the way they're they're designed but but you can build that smarts into your compiler and then then you don't have to to know the the nitty-gritty at that level right right I, I, so. and i'll tell you i i do need to go back and talk about the culture of computer hardware and software in the in the in that day in my day just about anybody who said they were they were a computer person they were had immediately after that I'm a hardware guy or I'm a software guy right well, I viewed myself as both hardware and software guys I had learned hardware design and then I had mm -hmm. learned software because then I had actually as part of as I told you gone through the thought processes of how do you go and do microcode which is the hardware related things mm -hmm. and you have to understand the hardware to to do that, the actual machine code, as they called it, and right. and so now you can start to integrate what you need to do in hardware versus software. You can make those yeah. trade-offs, and that's it's always the philosophy that uh, that Apple has had as a company, right? It was like we're not going to just do operating systems, we're not going to just do computers. We got to do both because you got to take advantage of each. That's exactly make, right. And make decisions and about when it's better to make your solution in software and when it's better to make your solution in hardware. Exactly right. That's that's mm -hmm. uh, how that all that stuff evolved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, that mindset is essentially why they've decided to switch to using hardware that they design. Because up to this point, they've been designing their computers, but they've been using other people's uh, parts, and they will still yeah. use other people's parts in this. But they're building more and more of those parts themselves, because then they can design that part right from the ground up to say. I need it to be able to do this because this would be better handled in hardware rather than in software for us. Right. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, no, in fact, I was I talked to a friend of mine the other day and they had just um uh her husband had just gone out and purchased a laptop for their daughter to she's just graduating college. And I said, "Oh, what did he get her?" And she didn't know. Either that or she didn't want to tell me because she knew how I would react if it wasn't wasn't what I thought was the right computer. Because I can't imagine today buying any kind of computer and not getting one of the new uh, Macs that has an M1 chip in it. Absolutely. You know? and, it and if the ones that, uh, that they currently have don't meet your needs because you really do need to have more ports on it or something, uh, you know, or a little bit more memory or whatever, um, then I would say wait because the other ones will be out, you know, in the next six months. But, yeah, for heaven's sake, don't go out and buy an Intel-based computer today. 
and they're and they're going to it's going to be really tempting because they they got to get these things off the shelf because oh yeah more the more of these uh uh new yeah uh silic apple silicon stuff yeah is out there uh, right the less well and you know that the 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 dells and the hps of the world are going to be working with microsoft to to get their machines moved over to arm code as quickly as they can i mean there's already a version of arm windows that works and and they just added um the ability of the arm windows machines to run uh intel based software on them something that was built into the the Max from the get-go, the the Rosetta, they just added that in. But most of the ARM Windows machines to this point have all been super, super light and super long battery power and super, super underpowered. So the last thing you want is to have a slow machine that's now having to do translation at the hardware level. Um, yep. Yeah, so they're, they're well, the going to struggle. The more constraints that you put on the designers of, uh, of like... I got to maintain compatibility with it, all this mountain of code that I've written. Uh, right. The, the less likely you are to succeed. Yeah. And that, that's that's at, and at some point, and I'm not saying that we're at this point, but it sounds like we're getting damn close to the point where you have to abandon the past. You just have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I think that the Windows people are trying to do that. Apple, that's one thing that as a company, Apple has done a really good job of is that they say, okay, we're going this way now. That other stuff, we'll support it for, and they insert yeah. time. And they say, that's it. And after that, we're not supporting anymore. You're on your own. You know? And it's like, you know, tough luck. Now, that said, tends to be seven or eight years for their laptops. Yeah. I mean, if you go look at what's what's currently supported with Macs, you can have a seven or eight year old Mac that is still fully supported. Will run the latest versions of the software. They're still getting you know bug bug fixes and updates because what they do is they'll even if even if you've been termed out of the most recent version of the operating system, then for another two or three years they will still provide bug fixes for the version of operating the lat, the the last version of operating system that you can run on your hardware. So they try to give you almost a decade on their hardware yep. uh, before you really absolutely have to change it. That said, too, I want to I want to soften what I said a little bit because I said you know I said if you if you, if you, you know you shouldn't be buying an Intel based computer, not a hundred percent true. That Intel based computer today that you buy that you can get this great deal on because everybody's trying to blow them out because they know they're going to be old soon, um, will be the same computer that it is that today that you buy it in three or four years, and at that point then you could upgrade. I mean, there, if you bought your kid a PC that is Intel-based today to go to college. It's not what I would do, but that kid's going to be able to use that computer through their entire run of college without any trouble and then look at getting something new at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and in fact, if you think about it for a parent, that's a wise choice for his kid because the kid isn't going to uh, really mm-hmm. need uh, any the, the performance mm-hmm. and stuff that you're talking about with these machine yeah for the average kid i would say it depends on what your kid's doing if your kid's going into computer science then you probably should talk to your kid about what to get because he probably or she probably knows what she wants and needs better than you do yeah you know but um and to be honest a lot of kids going into computer science probably aren't going to want uh uh may not want a mac they may say you know what i would rather have a pc or if they get a mac they want an intel one because they may have to run windows on it because there may be things that they're going to have to do in classes that's going to be Windows-based. 
So, yep. you know, there's reasons to do that. And, uh, and so, yeah, depending on what your kid's going to do in college, you know, but there's that, a that lot more so. jobs out there today for non-Windows stuff, I think, uh, than there are for Windows. Uh, because yeah, I, I think there's still an awful lot of Windows stuff out there. Um, but, yeah, all the newer stuff, I think, is is probably going to... A uh, lot, lot of stuff's being done in, you know, web design and, uh, and server-side design. And that's happening in things like, you know, languages like Python that um, aren't necessarily tied to... Um, Right. You know, an architecture one way or the other, Um, you know, to be honest, though, I mean, you know, other than like Swift, Swift is very much tied to the Mac right now, although there are Swift compilers in the Unix world and there's even a Windows and, you know, a a not not Microsoft supported Windows Swift compiler out there. Um, See, this is where Alex would come be really contribute to this because he's right. He's doing it, you know. Yeah, he's actively working in the in the development field these days. Although, again, he works for a company that does stuff with the government, so I would say that he's probably doing more Windows and probably more C programming than than either of us would would have guessed. Yeah, could be. You know, well, Python. Uh, last time I talked to him, about Python was a, the end thing for him. Right. Yeah. And and uh, uh, Python is is big. It's big yeah. in a lot of things. And in fact, I've read several articles that said if you're going into development these days, that's what you should learn. And quite frankly, you want to learn that, go buy a $35 Raspberry Pi. It's built in. They've got Python development environment built into the thing for 35 bucks. If you've got a monitor, a keyboard, and a mouse, you can have a standalone Python machine that you can do anything you want with. By the way, I, I did notice there was some connection, although I didn't really get grasp it, between the Raspberry Pi and this Acorn and other stuff that history that we talked about at the beginning. Right. Raspberry uh, Pi runs on an ARM processor. I Yeah, I, I think it's just because of just a, that sort of nebulous thing. But by the way, there's also hundreds of different ARM processors out there, too. It just depends who, uh, yeah. who's building it, you know. Right, but the thing is, is if if they're if they're if they're a licensed ARM uh, architecture, then they run the same microcode. So you can, you know, depending on what operating system you're running on, doesn't mean it'll always run. But uh, you know, Raspberry Pi runs on Raspbian, which is a a a branch of Debian Linux, and yeah. so it it's it's. Uh, but, but, uh, but there's but there's lots of variations. Is all I'm saying. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. but it's funny if you get into that world, you know. There's the the Raspberry Pi uh, four, but they also have the the Raspberry Pi zero, which is a ten dollar computer, and it literally does the same things. It's just you know runs a little slower and has less memory available to it. But people are yeah. buying those things and using them to embed into all kinds of controllers and and sure. and, and smart things. You know, the only thing in that world that I think is missing, and I've seen one company did it, but I wish there'd be more, is. I want a uh, a keyboard and an LCD screen, basically in a laptop case. I want to be able to plug my uh, my arm, my my Raspberry Pi into that, and then if the, you know if I want to upgrade, I can upgrade the whole computer by pulling it out and plugging in the next motherboard. Um, they use the basically the same form factor for all of them, and yeah. uh, you know why why can't I make my my Raspberry Pi into a laptop? And nobody seems to have that out there as a uh, as a standard thing, I saw one company that was sort of doing it, um, but you well, paid more you for got, the stupid case you a, than you did for. When you've got a ten dollar chip. The question is, 
how how much can you charge for your screen and keyboard you know <laughs> right yeah yeah it's a screen with a touchpad and a keyboard on it and you know ultimately that ended up costing more than the computer did um, that's right yeah. And the one that I saw didn't have a battery in it, although I understood that there's some people did a mod so you could put a battery in it, um, and uh, but so you'd have to plug it in. It wasn't really a portable like a, we think of as a laptop. But I thought it was kind of cool. The mod that they did, they just bought a standard uh, battery that you could pick up off of um, off of Amazon or something, and they said it had to meet, you know, had to be between this width and uh, you know these dimensions, length, width, and depth. And if it, and if it, and and it gave you a range, so you could buy any one of a several batteries, and they said it needed to have a USB A out, and you brought the USB out, plugged it onto the board, and voila! Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you had a a battery powered laptop arm computer. Yep. You know, and the thing is, by the time you bought the case and the and the battery and the uh, thing you were spending, you know, you ended up spending two or three hundred bucks. And let's face it, for two or three hundred bucks, I can go buy a a, a laptop. So it wasn't like I was saving any money there. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's the thing is it's a, you got to think about the marketability of these things. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, Todd. I know it's not very long yet, but I need to uh, take a break. Excuse me. That's all right. We're about an hour into it, so let's just say today's show was an hour, all right? So uh, thanks for joining us on this walk down memory lane with uh, ARM architectures and computing languages. It was. Uh, you know, wasn't wasn't like a hey, here's the newest, coolest stuff type of show, but uh, interesting nonetheless. So, uh, thank you for joining us. Okay, Tom. have a great day. We'll see you. Bye bye. Bye bye.